Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, his first run for office came when he was an undergrad at UCLA, running for the state assembly at the really young age of 22. Yeah, and he lost that one. But ultimately, he prevailed, winning a seat in 2010 and serving three terms in the state assembly, where he focused on issues not always championed by Democrats, like reining in excessive pensions. We'll talk with Mike Gatto in a few minutes, but... First, Marisa, oh my gosh, where do you begin? <laughs> it has been, have we moved to Mars? Uh, you know, it's been red skies here in the Bay Area. Today is a little better, but uh, crazy uh, weather and the fires. And of course, in Sacramento, a lot of bad blood, a lot of finger pointing. Yeah, I think the uh, the sky might be red up there for a different reason, perhaps. Yeah, we had a, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of um, follow. And it's interesting because I think a lot of this usually kind of dusts up right after the session ends and, and ends quickly. But we're seeing kind of week two of some of the fallout of the very rushed end of session. We're talking about, of course, some of the stuff we talked about on the show last week, including Buffy Wicks um, feeling like she had to bring her infant to the floor, but also just some intra-house, old-fashioned political political feuding, right? Exactly. And to uh, talk with us about that, we've uh, got our own Katie Orr joining us from Sacramento. And Katie, you've been uh, watching all this. You've had a not really a front row seat because nobody's at the Capitol, but uh, you have been up there and talking uh, and hearing from, I should say, yeah, some I of the legislators involved. <laughs> um, let's just uh, talk about, first of all, um, you know, what's been going on with the leadership. Uh, Speaker Anthony Rendon in the Assembly versus uh, Tony Atkins in the Senate. Uh, Tony Atkins saying that uh, the Speaker just let the clock run out on purpose so that some of uh, the key legislation, including her bill on housing, didn't make it uh, to uh, a vote in time. What, what do you make of this session, the end of session, and the, you know, just sort of the temperature up there, <laughs> literally and figuratively, in Sacramento? Literally, it's really hot. Uh, it's like 111. <laughs> um, but, you know, this session, and I'm sure Mike can speak to this uh, when you guys uh, talk to him, it really just exemplifies what we're always hearing about the kind of strife between the Assembly and the Senate. And it, that was really on display uh, during this end of session. As you mentioned, there were people who felt that Speaker Rendon deliberately slow walked several bills for whatever reason, including a, a big housing bill from which, which he denies, we should say he does. He absolutely says that's not the case that you know, they all went through the normal process. And, you know, to be fair, there's that this is largely one of those things where it's, you know, his word against hers, there's 
you know, and there's conflicting sort of uh, evidence, I should say, as well in terms of texts and uh, emails and all these other things. Well, that's more around the Buffy Wick situation, right? I mean, I, I think, I mean, Katie, tell me this though, because I think that some of this, and I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, but there have long been critiques of Rendon's leadership style. This essentially, the critique is that he leads from behind, that he gives sort of devolves a lot of power to committee chairs, um, and that he doesn't take the reins in the same way we've seen former speakers, like maybe John Perez, the previous speaker to him, or even, or was he directly previous? Like, I might have my speakers. Or Tony Atkins. Or Tony Atkins, <laughs> or Tony Atkins <laughs> who's now the Senate leader. Or let's mm -hmm. think back to Willie Brown, the Ayatollah of the Assembly, who would have had all of this sort of tied up in a bow, whichever way he wanted it. I mean, do you feel like some people are kind of taking advantage of longstanding critiques, uh, people maybe who didn't don't have a great relationship with him? Sure. I mean, it's politics. There's always people there who are hoping to use the situation um, for their benefit, perhaps someone who would like to be speaker. You know, uh, Rendon potentially could be in the position for a total of 12 years because of term limits. And that's a long time. And that's a long time for him, for anyone um, to expect that the rest of the membership will just kind of sit back and wait because it's their careers. They're all trying to, you know, go ahead politically. Uh, I think, though, what what some people may uh, say is a criticism of him that he leads from behind. Other people, particularly probably his uh, committee chairs, right. probably really appreciate that because it gives them um, the freedom to kind of run their committees the way they want to. I mean, we've all had you know, micromanaging <laughs> bosses in the past, and that's never fun. So I not you, Scott, not, me, not Scott Schaefer, not, not Scott talking Schaefer. about Scott. Scott is a Rendon type, you know. Oh God! Uh -oh. Okay. <laughs> in the best way possible. Buffy Wicks for senior editor. Um, well, speaking of Buffy Wicks, I mean, because there now there are. You had her on the show last week. I was not here, but uh, you know, she uh, has gotten so much attention for going onto the floor with her newborn and. Uh, was there because she had been denied a, the opportunity to vote remotely or have a proxy vote. And now there are whispers of, and maybe not more than whispers, but uh, out front people saying, well, maybe Buffy Wicks ought to be the speaker. Do you have any sense of, like, what is that doing to their relationship? I mean, I know that she's taken pains not to blame him, at least in The New York Times. Right. I mean, and she has to be careful because if she wants to have any kind of uh, role of power within the assembly, um, she can't. You can't make the leadership angry. I mean, it was it's interesting because just that night um, when they were saying goodbye to Assemblyman Ian Caldron, who hasn't uh, is not running for reelection, um, Assemblywoman Lerna Gonzalez and the speaker were all talking about on the floor how they were in the doghouse for a couple of years because he had made a play for this. Um, so it is something that is a very uh, touchy and you have to be smart about it. I, I think, you know, uh, certainly I've spoken to people, Buffy Wicks is a politician as well, right? She knows what she's oh, yeah. doing. <laughs> and so she, on some level, had to make this calculation that this would be good for her and any good side would outweigh, you know, what potential pushback she would face. I want to bring uh, Mike Gatto in in just a moment, but before I let you go, Katie, one of the bills that died, uh, several bills uh, related to police reform as well as this wildfire appropriation, this $500 billion dollars, a lot of uh, real consternation about that. But w what's your take on why, pol and Marisa, jump into why police reform, if any year seemed like the year that that would succeed in Sacramento, it would be this year, given everything we've seen. But it didn't didn't make it. 
You know, I think we're seeing on police reform and on a lot of the bills that, you know, for instance, the extension of family leave that just squeaked by. California um, leaders give themselves a lot of credit for being very progressive. But when it comes to big bills like that, the state isn't sometimes, you know, maybe in comparison to other other states. But it's still a um, we're still dealing with. 40 million people with diverse interests and their and their representatives primarily take those interests into account. And so I think it speaks to the fact that even though we like to think of ourselves as this liberal bastion, um, it's not quite as far to the left as people, uh, particularly lawmakers, want to believe. Yeah, and of course, some of the folks with D's after their names are really kind of moderate Republicans, or at least moderate Dems, for sure, and have, you know, in different any other state, priorities. At least. Yeah. yeah, in any other state, <laughs> at least. All right, well, uh, Katie Orr, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We're going to let you go and take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by former Assemblymember Mike Gatto. He may be out of the legislature, but he's still very active on policy issues. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is former Assemblyman Mike Gatto. He represented parts of Los Angeles in the State Assembly from 2010 to 2016. Now he spends time, at least some of his time, as a political analyst on TV. He's also helping supporters of the Prop 20 campaign. That's the referendum to uh, block that law that would end cash bail in California. In other words, he's out of the legislature, but still in the thick of California politics. Mike Gatto, welcome to Political Breakdown. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm and impressed by we... all the books you have behind you. <laughs> our, are you in a library? Can't hear this, Do you, have but... you read those books? <laughs> these, these are the books in the library that were good enough to read five times. <laughs> oh, <Wow>. okay. <laughs> I'm impressed. Well, you, I know you were sitting in as we chatted with Katie Orr a moment ago. What is your take as somebody who served up in Sacramento uh, on the kind of acrimony and finger pointing that we're, we're hearing this week uh, after the session ended? What's well, fascinating because um, usually the end of session is a time for tremendous, uh, you know, anger between the Senate and the Assembly. But it's usually uh, targeted at various committee chairs in both houses who a rank and file member believes 
is not giving uh, that member's bill a fair shake. And usually it's the leadership of both houses, the pro tem and the speaker, who come in and say, oh, come on, you know, uh, Senator so-and-so had a good reason for holding your bill or, you know, assembly member so-and-so is not really working that hard against your bill. And they're usually the voices of reason. Now, I have seen it in the past where, frankly, there are, um, uh, you know, what matches between the leadership of the houses, but I have never seen it as bad as this year. Do you think that that is a function of, I mean, let's be clear, it is 2020. This is a really weird year in a lot of ways. COVID did slow down the legislative work. Um, but is it a function of that, do you think, or is it a function of personality differences? I mean, we talked a little bit about Rendon's leadership style, which is different than a lot of his predecessors. Like, what's your sense? I know you're still talking to a lot of folks, even though you're not up there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the sense that I get is that there are genuine personality or I guess the actual, the, the better word would be interpersonal differences between the leaders, the leaders of the houses. Uh, the thing is, though, in my experience, these things always heal. I mean, I have seen, um, you know, previous leaders go at it quite heavy duty in uh, August and the bad feelings persist through September. But you know what? By spring of next year, they got to be working together again. And that's just the reality of life in the Capitol. Do you think it, it, you said personalities? Yes. But do you think the leadership style uh, of the speaker in particular uh, has had anything to do with it? Uh, you know, I do. I mean, um, I, I think partly it's because people in Sacramento just don't know how to deal with him. I mean, he's been speaker for a long time now, um, but they are so used to. Uh, Heavy you know, handed. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, you, you go back and, you, you know, I served under John Perez who was a tremendously strong and organized and intelligent and calculating speaker. And for, for calculating you know, in the best sense of the yeah. world, <laughs> the absolute best sense of the word. And you know, what's I'll give you a little anecdote. There is one member of the legislature. He is still there and he hated John Perez. I mean, despised him with every fiber of his being during his freshman term. And uh, you know, then he served under speaker Atkins and he obviously serves under speaker Rendon. You know, he came to me the other day and said, God, I miss John Perez. I, I know, I've heard that same thing. <laughs> you know, which is fascinating. Uh, fascinating. Now, I, now, by the way, I'm not saying that necessarily as a knock on Mr. Rendon or Ms. Atkins. I'm saying that people think they hate the the stricture and the order and the, the you know, following the rules and, you know, the heavy-handedness. But it exists for a reason. Uh, the assembly can be a very unruly place. There are, you know, 79 members to get in order. And sometimes you need a speaker who is going to really wrangle the, uh, you know, everybody in place. So we want to get into your life and, and work in a moment. But as a father of three young children, I'm curious who, you know, I think when you were first um, sworn in as an assembly speaker, only had one kid. So you went through having, you know, young children, babies while you were in office. What do you make of the Buffy Wick situation? And does it feel like things have changed over the past decade around families and how families, you know, and mothers in particular are treated in Sacramento? Well, you know, I, I, I sort of start this with just when you thought they had changed, right? I mean, um, so my, my experience for what it's worth, um, my, my first child, so I served four terms, not, not three, believe it or not. Um, I had my First term was weird because my election was in April and then I took office in June. Very Three strange. full terms then, I guess. Right? Yeah, but my my daughter was born uh, in an emergency. My first daughter was born in an emergency procedure the day before the Democratic Party endorsement. 
And I literally left Cedar Sinai. I'd been up all night. It was a very difficult birth. She was born at 5.55 a.m. And I was up all night and I literally left Cedar Sinai with, you know, the, the admittance bracelet on my hand and went to the Democratic Party endorsement in my race. I was like, ah, yeah, please vote for me, you know. And I got it by one vote and that made a big difference in my race. That bracelet must have been good for at least one vote, I would think. <laughs> Maybe they had pity on me. But, um, but, you know, the campaign trail was very, very difficult. And then my marriage was tremendously strained because, you know, my wife felt like I was giving too much to the campaign and to my job and not enough to my children. And then I moved my family up to Sacramento with me. I figured, look, I'm up there four to five days a week, nine months a year. I'd rather have them up here than down there. And, you know, in a very famous incident, one of my colleagues, Adrian Nazarian, uh, gave me grief on the assembly floor with no shame, you know, said, oh, you know, you spend too much time in Sacramento. I was like, well, look, we're up here nine months a year and my family's here. And um, they actually changed the law after I left office. So it was very difficult. And I can tell you that, you know, again, without getting too much of my personal <laughs> situation. Oh, we have third, more questions about that, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> when my third child was born, you know, we had been trying for four or five years for that third child. And when, you know, he finally came and we were blessed with, with my wife getting pregnant, it was right when I was going to run statewide. And my wife said, you are not running statewide. <laughs> I will not be giving birth to our child when you are at a fish fry in, the, in Fresno, like, and, and, you know, driving, trying to get back on a late flight. So it's very hard for families. And I can only imagine how it is for a nursing mother. I mean, at least in my case, I could be physically away from my, my children. It pained me, it pained them. But for a nursing mother, there's a physical need to be with a child. And I'm shocked that Buffy Wicks had to go through what she had to go through. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown on KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Assemblyman Mike Gatto and Marisa Lagos, I should say, my co-host. Yeah. Uh, Mike Gatto, a Democrat from Los Angeles, working these days as a political analyst on TV in the Southland, among other things. Um, and Mike, you first, as we said at the top, uh, ran for the assembly in 1996. You must have been, what, 22 years old? I think you were a, maybe a senior at UCLA. You were an undergrad, I think. Yeah, I was what? a 21-year-old senior at UCLA. I started college at 17, so I was 21. Oh, and... overachiever. So, <laughs> what, what... Just, young, just October birthday, that's all. What did you? Yeah, all right. <laughs> what, uh, what did you think you, why did you think you were the guy to go to Sacramento at that, you know, tender age of 21? Oh, gosh. You know, at the time, I was living in a district that was shaped like a bow tie. And the two sections of the bow tie felt ignored. And they asked me to run. And I was stupid enough to say yes. And I thought I would uh, serve the district way better than the gentleman who only paid attention to one part of the bow tie. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I mean, look, uh, I realized that spirit motivates a lot of people to run for office. You could argue that spirit motivated someone as strong and brilliant as AOC to run for office. Um, but when I look back at you know how I was at 21, it's like, gosh, I had a lot of maturing to do. And there's also a part of me that, that really understands when the framers of the Constitution made a 35-year uh, limit for being president. I look at how immature I was at 21 and I say, wow, there's a good reason for that requirement. <laughs> <laughs> well, you went on, um, you worked for Congressman uh, Brad Sherman. You went to law school. You're a lawyer. He is a lawyer too, Scott. He's not just a talking head on TV. Yes, you know. a very informed um, <laughs> talking head. I'm going to be a used car a salesman. Lot of books. I'm going to be a used car salesman, true, and I will have the trifecta of hated 
professions. Yeah, journalists <laughs> too. Yeah, but you know, you when you came to Sacramento, you were I think only thirty five. Um, so you were still relatively young for that body. Talk about when you ran the second time. Um, what was it driving you? What was it that you thought you could bring up there? And and I don't know. How do you assess kind of how how you did during that time? Sure. So great question. So when I was running for the assembly, you know, my campaign started in uh, July 2009. Very strange uh, schedule, of course, because of special elections. My my um, I was, you know, go, go from December 2009 full time. And if if we can all harken back to that time, I know it's hard right now, uh, given everything that's happened bad and good. But the state was in a horrible, horrible, horrible shape. I mean, um, you could not open the newspaper in the morning or turn on the radio without hearing another story. I'll never forget, you know, my predecessor giving a speech uh, when I was on the campaign trail talking about the, the budget discussions. The state assembly was discussing how many patients who depended on the state for health care, they had to unplug from kidney dialysis. That's how bad the budget was at that time. And I remember, you know, I've always been a dollars and cents person, as, as you know, you know, a lot of my bills focused on that. And I thought that I had something to offer when it came to managing the actual business of government better. Uh, that's always been my thing. Uh, I'm not one of these folks, and I, I give them massive kudos, you know, who you've been a teacher for 20 years and you've been an administrator and been in education for 40 years and you run to the for the assembly because you wanna be in education. I was a systems and process guy. I wanted to see how the big picture worked and try to improve it. And uh, I think I did okay. You, uh, as you said, you were a dollar and cents guy and you know, you uh, pushed for a rainy day fund. You uh, also had legislation to rein in some of the excesses of uh, pensions. Um, those are not things that, uh, you know, Democrats from, say, a place like Los Angeles often embrace. Uh, was that a deliberate thing? And, like, did you get blowback from, for example, organized labor, which is a big benefactor of Democratic candidates and incumbents, uh, and, you know, not really a fan so much of either one of those things? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, here's an anecdote about the rainy day fund that I've never told anybody. Um, when I ran for office, I did this. Well, I was practicing law at a law firm, and one of the partners there was a guy by the name of Bob Hertzberg. You might have heard of him. <laughs> heard of him. I've been hugged by for, him. <laughs> I, I asked for his endorsement, and he was intensely cruel to me um, in the meeting and basically told me that I knew nothing and that I needed to study up. And I did. I went and I got a mound of paperwork. I still have it. I mean, it was probably about as tall as I am. Um, read every report that PPIC puts out and, and uh, the LAO. And I concluded really fast that one of the only things that would save us from this budget up and down was a rainy day fund. So I took that position in an interview with an, with an editorial board and they, they were like, yeah, right, you're gonna fight for it. When I came to Sacramento and I was thrust into my, my uh, first term in the middle of June, I introduced the legislation. I introduced the constitutional amendment on the rainy day fund. Nobody else would sign it there was such fear among Democrats. There, there was just this tremendous fear that, you know, you're, you're sticking your neck out. We all know this has to be done, but you're a total idiot for doing it and for putting your name on it. Literally, the bill vehicle, everybody removed their names from it. And then, you know, the, the governor started to talk. This is still Schwarzenegger at the time. He started to kind of go for it. Jerry Brown, the campaign trail, started talking about it. Uh, Speaker Perez said, yeah, it's okay. And gradually we had more people sign on and everything like that. And just explain for those who may not you know, know, why, why would there be such fear and antipathy toward a rainy day fund, which seems well, like a good the, idea. Yeah, this is, this is the big irony. Um, so, so at the time, organized labor, particularly public sector labor, 
thought that the rainy day fund would take money away from immediate expenditures towards their members, salaries, benefits, things like that, and, and fully adequately staffing state departments. And it would put that money aside. Uh, the irony now is uh, there was a big squabble a couple of years ago and, um, and the big, or maybe it was a year ago now, and the big squabble was organized labor against the Republicans for the exact opposite. It was like, hey, we've got adequately, the Republicans wanted to give the money back in taxes. <laughs> the organized labor said, the rainy day fund has worked great. We've got to put more money into it because we know it's going to preserve our members in the future. So it just goes to show, I mean, I was getting yelled at at endorsement meetings from public sector labor at the time, yelled at, screamed at, practically having stuff thrown at me. And now it's one of the biggest things that they defend and they hold up the irony is they hold up Jerry Brown <laughs> who, uh, who did it all. Um, and I'm sure you and Hertzberg patched things up after that. Um, I, <laughs> maybe <More or> less, <laughs> not so yeah. much. So I, I guess we should explain that Hertzberg is the one who wrote the, the bail uh, initial or the bail law that you are now um, trying to help repeal. Um, but before we get into that, I, I want to switch gears a little and talk about something that um, I know is, been probably one of the most difficult things in your life, but also is something you've talked about a lot publicly, which is your dad's murder, which um, was happened in 2013. You were in Sacramento at the time, physically, and you were also still in office. Um, I believe it's unsolved to this day. It was a home invasion. I mean, besides just the devastation of losing your dad, who I know how close you were to, can you talk about how that changed you, whether it changed you as, as a person, as a politician, um, just kind of your point of view? Gosh, how much time do we have? So, <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it absolutely changed me. Um, but, but I'll tell you two principles. So, so you know, that happened midway through my tenure. I knew that I had roughly seven legislative sessions, and I knew roughly uh, at that time. I mean, I, I didn't have the hubris of assuming I would be reelected, but most assembly members are reelected, and I knew that I was termed out in 2016, and so on and so forth. And I made a promise to myself. I made two promises. Number one, that I did not want to be defined as the guy who whose dad got murdered in office, and that's what people remember me for. And it made me work harder on other things, you know, PUC reform, uh, budgeting reform, you know, things like that, because I didn't want to be remembered for that. I was chair of appropriations at the time. I had already introduced legislation that I thought was meaningful, but I didn't want to just go down as the guy whose dad was murdered in office. The second one is um, I am reminded, or I was reminded at the time of uh, saying in the Capitol, which is anecdotes make bad law meaning your personal, I mean, there was a Senator, I forget her name, but like she would go to the, she would go pick up a prescription and, you know, and they, they her pharmacy would print the label in nine point and she'd come back to Sacramento and introduce a bill that pharmacies had to print labels in 10 point. And now, meanwhile, 90% of pharmacies print in 12 point, but you know, it was like your personal experience makes bad law. So I tried to temper my personal experience, you know, with my attitude on criminal justice in the Capitol. I tried to be balanced about it as much as I could. Well, well and, you know, to that point, I mean, as much as you could, did, did you feel, do you feel that it did, you know, I mean, as all of our experiences do change the way you looked at those issues? I mean, when, when you know, our life experiences affect the way we see things. It did. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you another anecdote that illustrates that, you know, best that I can, um, you know, when I, so, when I was up there, first of all, I, I also made a pact that I was going to show up to work every day and never miss votes. And you guys know that. And also that I was going to vote up or down on every bill. I was not going to be one of these chickens who takes a walk and then later tells people, well, I was in the bathroom or I wasn't sure how to vote. And they tell both sides what they want to hear. I, you know, I was never going to abstain. And, um, 
and also in my later years, I got probably a little, well, I was very contrarian. I had the most no votes of any Democrat. And I, it was kind of weird pushing the red button and being with Republicans on a lot of votes. But in my first couple months in the legislature, there was a vote on a bill called AB 109. It was a budget trailer bill that relocated people from state prison to the state. So you guys know about it. For the viewing audience, it arguably worked very well for certain small counties. If you were in Humboldt and you got arrested for selling marijuana and they sent you to state prison, you came out a hardened criminal. But if you could be housed in Humboldt, maybe your family would be there and maybe your, your mom and your, your, your grandma would, would get you straight and you would have more opportunities to relocate back into Humboldt. Okay, but for counties like Los Angeles, it was an absolute disaster. We don't have the jail space. We sent the, the prisoners down here and they all got turned out free. And these were people from state prison that had been previously housed. I wanted to vote no on that bill. And I got talked into voting yes. And you guys know the arm twisting that happens at the end of session. Um, or not and, this year, but yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's those famous shots, right, of assembly members standing over the desk of the one holdout, right? And my, my instinct told me to vote no. Every fiber of my being told me to vote no. But I got dragooned into voting yes. Calls from the governor, speaker, so on and so forth. So you feel it was a mistake now? Well, when, when I met with the police after my father was murdered, they had, they still do, they have a profile of the person who did it. And they told me with a horrible bedside manner, this is maybe 36 hours after I, uh, you know, had driven down from Sacramento and after learning about it, they told me, they said, well, yeah, this is likely an AB 109 or how do you feel about your vote now? I mean, it was unbelievable for them to say this to me, but it wow. was also quite telling because it told me and it and the message I give to young legislators is vote your conscience. Yeah. Do what you think. About. Mike Otto, that is not the note we usually end on, <laughs> but uh, it was a great, great story. And it was great to have you. Thank you so much. We know we're going to hear from you in the future. You're not going to finish your career as a TV analyst <laughs> is my <laughs> guess. But uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit Donate dot kqed dot org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks